Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. Here in America, and, and you know, we've all seen courtroom movies, uh, an actual trial looks a lot more like a competition between two competing versions of what happened. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. We're in the studios of KQED in San Francisco with our team. Hadar Avaram, a member of our advisory scholars. Brittany Batorf, chair of our advisory board. Tony Gannon, our senior producer. Asagi Obaski, a member of our advisory board. And joining us for the first time is our new advisory board member, Jessica McKellar. Welcome, everyone. We're here to have a conversation about our most recent episode. It was called 10 Hours to 20 Years, and it was about prosecutorial discretion or the discretion of prosecutors. If you haven't listened, I hope you'll go and make some time. We're going to be talking about it in this episode of Life of the Law, so I'm going to ask our new advisory board member to introduce herself, tell us a little bit about herself. Sure. My name is Jessica McKellar. I am a software engineer by training. I run a, I run a company in San Francisco uh, that builds enterprise software. And I'm a longtime listener of Life of the Law, and I, I care a lot about the topics that are discussed in this show. And I'm really excited to be able to dig in on some of what was covered in this episode, in particular from the perspective of someone who doesn't have a background in the law, but cares deeply about how it affects us all day today. Give us a wrap of what 10 hours to 20 years was all about. Jessica. Yeah, so this is tracing the the series of events that started with a plan to steal a bunch of valuable comic books. Um, and this didn't go, I think, as planned. Um, it ended up with someone uh, dying. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, some of the folks involved in, in this criminal act uh, were also doing some other things that were illegal uh, that involved um, shoplifting and selling things across state lines in a way that made... Uh, this set of actions eligible for prosecution under racketeering laws, which makes it a federal case. And and this story traces from what was going on sort of at the county level up through the federal level and how prosecutorial discretion really changed what folks could be sentenced for and like really dramatically affected the outcomes for the people who were involved at various levels in, in this set of incidents. Okay, so what is prosecutorial discretion? I'm, I'm Hadar. I'm a professor at UC Hastings, and I study criminal justice. Um, prosecutorial discretion is really important in America because we have an adversarial system. That means that uh, essentially every criminal trial is a competition between the prosecution and the defense. Uh, the judge has a relatively less dominant role than in other countries, and we have a lot of times the guilt and innocence of people decided by juries. Uh, unless, of course, there's a plea bargain. This means that prosecutors are crucially important because they're the ones that decide whether a case is going to go through and what shape that case is going to take. It's also important to say that we have a lot of criminal laws, both on the federal level and on the state level. So prosecutors actually have a very rich menu to choose from. Think about one of those restaurants that has, you know, 200 menu items of various sizes and various flavors. And the prosecutors have all of that at their disposal. Not only can they decide what to charge you with, but there are also offenses that sort of link with each other, and I hope we'll talk a little bit more about about all of that uh, later, which is to say sometimes there are circumstances that sort of uh, uh, upgrade something, upgrade an offense into something much more severe because there's a presence of some fact or some you know other factor that the legislature uh, put there. Prosecutors have a crucial role there because not only do they push the case through, but most of the time their initial decision of what to charge the person with is also going to 
basically decide how the case is going to end. Uh, the vast majority of cases in America end in plea bargains, which means people plead guilty in return to some deal with the prosecutor uh, uh, on, on the charges. And the prosecutor has all the bargaining chips because they can overcharge you for something so as to make you agree to less charges for in, in return to a guilty in return for a guilty plea and, and for saving for saving money. Even if the case goes through to trial, because we have uh, pretty strict and pretty set sentencing laws in America, we call those determinate sentencing, judges actually don't have huge discretion with regard to what sentences they give because the sentences are largely prescribed by law. And that means that what you've been charged with largely is going to dictate what you're going to get. And I think this episode is is a prime example of that. So that term really jumped out at me when I was looking through, when I was doing just sort of my basic research on prosecutorial discretion, um, an adversarial system. Can you talk about what a system looks like when it's not adversarial? Sure. Um, if any of our listeners has ever seen one of those, you know, grim French movies about trials, you probably remember that there's this judge presiding, seating up on top, asking difficult questions. This is what we call an inquisitorial system. This is a system where, for the most part, the goal of the trial is to find out what happened. The prosecutor and the defense attorney have roles in these systems, but they're a lot more minor. And a lot of times you're put on the stand and you're basically being asked questions. Here in America, and, and you know we've all seen courtroom movies, uh, an actual trial looks a lot more like a competition between two competing versions of what happened. Either we have a prosecutorial version of what happened versus a defense version, or the defense is going to kind of like, you know, stay quiet, but try to poke holes through the prosecutorial story. So we're kind of, we're, it's, it's more of a sort of a competition, kind of a beauty contest of stories. Which story do the jury like more rather than an effort to kind of like cut out the games and find out what actually happened? So do we have sympathy for Arlene Coombs and all of the individuals in this story? Maybe this is a good moment to just play the tape. Mm -hmm. um, so in the story, we find out that these individuals who stole these comic books from this elderly man end up serving life sentences in federal prison. And, um, you know, so we reached out to Arlene Coombs, who is one of the the woman who actually um, kind of helped plan the robbery, but didn't actually participate in the robbery. And so we spoke to her from a federal prison to find out what she was thinking. Like, why did she do this? And what was what you know, was there any concern on her part? Um, so let's listen to that tape from Arlene Coombs. Well, I mean, I spoke to Rico, and at that point in my life, I was involved in drugs and stuff, and he told me about some comic books that people could go and get, and nobody was going to be home on a certain day. And so I told my cousin and a couple of our friends, and they said that they would go and get it, and then things didn't turn out the same as planned. So, but, um, how did you how did you know Rico? I mean, what what was that? I mean, did you meet him somewhere, or just as a casual acquaintance? Somebody had introduced me to him. Um, I worked for him at his pizzeria, as well as had dealt with him with his pawn shop. I had happened to be over at work, and he was talking about it. So when, when you first heard about it, what did you think about, like, there's these comic books, nobody's going to be home. Had you ever, have you ever been involved in something like that before, or was this, like, your first experience with no. that? I, at first, I didn't know what to think about it. I would have said, no, I don't, I've never 
and I wouldn't be able to break into somebody's house and take something. Like, I didn't even go to this. I wasn't there when they did it. So so how did that happen? So he brought it to your attention, said, hey, it's not going to be a problem, like, just to go break in this house? Yeah, he said that he had tried to buy them, and the guy wouldn't sell them to him, so that he um, he knew where they were, and the guy wasn't supposed to be home on the 4th of July, and that it would be easy, and they just were in the kitchen by the back door. So I took that information to other people who ended up going in and getting them. Did Rico tell you that you would benefit somehow from that? from introducing him to other people who would be willing to do it? Yeah. If so what I was, brought him what the was, comic book, he'd pay me. Oh, so I see. Your friends would go do it, and then you'd get the comic books, and you'd give them to Rico. Right. Uh, what, what was he going to give you for it? Did he tell you? It depended on what they were worth, but everybody who went was going to make $1,000. So how did you decide who to tell about it, who to bring in? I didn't go and bring anybody in. I went to my house and talked to my cousin and my boyfriend, and then they talked to their friend. It wasn't like we – it wasn't a group of people from the streets. It was my family and people that hung out with me on a daily basis. Oh, I see. Like, so then what happened? What happened next? Well, they said that we decided we weren't going to do it. And then um, my cousin came to me and told me he really needed the money and I wouldn't have to do anything. They just, they would go and get it and bring me the comic books. And so I went and told Rico and then we agreed to do it. They went to go get them, brought me the comic books, and I took them to Rico. He was paying them for going to get them, and then he was going to sell them and figure out what they were worth because I didn't know anything about comic books. So, so when when he went, did he say there were any problems? Like anything happened that that wasn't unexpected? Well, they said somebody ended up being home, and I didn't know anything about him being hit until after the fact. But apparently one of the guys was walking up the stairs and they got startled and they, uh, Donald Griffin said he punched them and then, but they didn't say like anything else other than that and I didn't find out about that until after the incident took place. Um, I found out a few weeks later that it was an elderly man that he had died because Rico told me um, at that point in time, I didn't know exactly what to think. And so I didn't get arrested until October 2010. But when did you, when did, when, and, and, and at first the state, I mean, it, was, it wasn't going to be, there wasn't going to be this kind of a charge against you. What, would, what did they initially charge you with? Assault, grand larceny and um burglary and and what kind of what kind of sentence would that have been in as a state seven crime? years seven years yeah and 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 was that when the state um tur- when the federal prosecutors got involved they got involved 
um, in November. I mean, they were involved from the beginning, but they didn't indict us until November. And and so what were you looking with that? So the charges were new. They were federal charges? They, once the federal charges picked it up, at the end of it, it was life. They superseded our indictment four times. So at first, it was a 10-year sentence, but it, after they added all the charges on, it became a life sentence is what we were facing. They indicted on the murder charge and sent me a piece of paper stating that they were going to seek the death penalty. I, at that point in time, had been sober for a while, so things were just start like emotions were just starting to be to come back and I was able to feel things and <laughs> I didn't even know where to begin. And just I remember being just dumbfounded, not understanding how it got from that to that. And and then you ended up taking a plea deal, right? Yeah. And you pled to to 20 years. Yeah. Why? Why did you plead? Because everybody else went against me, and if I would have went to trial, I would have went alone. What What do you think you're guilty of? I mean, I'm guilty of setting up a burglary, of stealing the comic books. I'm guilty of that. I never would have been involved if I had known the outcome was going to be this. What struck me about this story from the very beginning, from when I first heard it, when Mary Lee Williams brought it to us, was this sort of awareness that our justice system is entirely, or can be entirely subjected to uh, someone's whims, the whims of a prosecutor. Right, and it's, it's in some ways, this story is like the perfect storm, because there's all the things that can happen, all the unfortunate events that can unfold, unfold one after the other, right? First of all, there's the quote, the big question of moral luck, right? You do something, and the consequences could be nothing. You know, you could break into somebody's house and steal the comics, and nobody's going to be there. Or you can break into somebody's house, and the person happens to be there, and they also happen to have a heart condition, and, and they end up uh, sadly dying. And incidentally, I don't want to trivialize the fact that this is a horrific tragedy, no matter which way you look at it. So so there's the question of moral luck, right? Then on top of that, there's the question of these multiple people and the involvements between them and how kind of like, how do you do justice between all these different people that are involved in different levels in this and sort of pit them one against the other? And then, of course, there's the extra layer of the state versus federal, of the fact that the feds are sort of stepping in and, you know, basically scooping this case into the federal system because it ties in with this, you know, uh, racketeering charge that's kind of like a tube for importing cases from the state system into the federal system. And then, of course, you have all of this stuff leveraged against these people, pushing people to plead guilty. So then you also have people essentially pleading guilty to things. And I guess my impression, and you guys tell me what you think, my impression is that is that Arlene walks out of this feeling that, that this is a massive injustice. Like saying, yes, you know, I'm, I, I do feel guilty for certain aspects of this, but certainly not for you know, the entire the entire way everything unfolded. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about this is that, you know, criminal law spends a lot of time thinking about culpability. So when are people responsible for the actions that, that they do? And so, so much of the process is it's figuring out, you know, uh, trying to figure out what punishment 
fits the person's behavior. So, for example, if someone accidentally kills somebody, somebody in a car accident, we treat that person differently than someone who spent six months plotting the murder of an individual that they didn't like. And so the question is, in this story, is where do we fit Arlene in that spectrum? Um, so on, on the one hand, she did actively and knowingly engage in a plot that would result in a criminal burglary at someone's house. Um, and she openly admits that. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, she's someone who admits to being drug dependent at the time. Um, wasn't she thought the worst case scenario that she might get caught up in a burglary and spend a couple years in jail and had no idea that this would lead to a situation where someone will lose her life. And so in this abstract sense, we might say, well, in that sense, she's not the type of person we want to give a life sentence to or even spend 20 years in jail for that. This is not the. The, the premeditated uh, type of, of, of homicide that we tend to give longer sentences to. Um, yet, on the other hand, we can't say she's, she's uh, also, we, it's difficult to also say that she's um, kind of absent of any responsibility because she did, you know, decide to, to go along um, in this process. So I guess the, the issue here is kind of, and this is the difficult one, is like, where do we conceptualize her culpability in the, in the larger scheme of things, particularly in the context of how do we want to, or shall we say, how do we envision our criminal law enacting with situations such as this? Right. And, and and I'm thinking, you know, it's it's difficult enough to make these moral decisions when you're just sort of sitting with yourself in the dark tea time of the soul trying to figure out. But think about the fact that the prosecutor is actually having a lot of outside stuff that's going on as well. So part of it is that it's not just about what you think is right. It's also about what you think you can prove. And then you also have the fact that you're an elected of Official. This is this is something I forgot to mention earlier, and it's important. Prosecutors are elected officials, and they're accountable to to uh, to their constituents, right? So there's also a lot of pressure on you to kind of like show that you're doing the right thing. And uh, I, I spent a little bit of time this morning reading up on what the prosecutor said after this trial was over and saying how they, you know, they've sought justice for the victims and, and what have you. And this is a message that's essentially, you know, crafted for the constituents. So it's not just a question of what you think is morally true. It's also what the question of, of you know, what are the people who vote for you going to think? Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting also at the end of the story where they went back and talked to some of the victim's friends. And they said, yeah, you know, I do feel that, you know, this guy would still be here, but for this 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 experience, but for this, this crime. So and there in his friend's eyes, uh, you know, Arlene's participation, you know, was one domino in a series of events that led to the person's death. And so that speaks to the kind of the politicization of, of this event where it allows a prosecutor to say, you know, I am going to seek the maximum um, penalty. Uh, as part of this effort of obtaining some type of justice for someone who was unjustly murdered. Mm-hmm. One of the first questions I asked uh, Mary Lee Williams was, do, did we ever have a, a sense of the motivation behind why they pursued, uh, why the, the, the federal prosecutors uh, pursued uh, you know, racketeering and second-degree murder? And she said, I think she tried very hard to get some type of answer to that. I'm very curious to know if we do have cases where the prosecutorial discretion is used and we do understand the motivations This is a huge question, and it's actually a very hot question now in law and society research. Uh, There's a new book that just came out by Mona Lynch. It's called Hard Bargains. And she is actually looking at the federal system. She's looking at the way drug uh, drug cases get processed in the system. And and she she shows they're truly heartbreaking cases where people are really marginally involved in drug deals that are, in the grand scheme of things, not enormous. And they end up serving these incredibly draconian sentences. And she's trying to figure out why like why would you want to do this why would you want to pile up like lego you know all these charges to kind of get to these you know truly outrageous sentences and her sense is that first of all prosecutors do it because they can 
because essentially the law gives you the tools that enables you to do that. This is, I mean, they don't make any of this up. This is all written up in the law. Like all this, these possibilities to upgrade things are all set up in the law. In our case, it's RICO. In the drug cases, it's all kinds of enhancements and things like that. So, so you're already sort of empowered just by the fact that these tools are there at your disposal. But she also says that there's a big difference uh, between she she looked in the in the book at different district courts to see what happens in different locations, and she says you know people's motivations and the way they play with these tools really differ based on where they are. So she's looking at this Northeastern District, this federal district court, and she's uh, she's interviewing this prosecutor who's always giving these speeches about how educational these sentences are and how he wants to kind of like, you know, get people out of this, you know, drug infested world that they live in and, you know, pull them out. And yeah, he's actually doing them a favor by charging them with something that's 35 years for a nonviolent drug offense. So there's this guy who perceives himself basically as a do-gooder, like he thinks of himself as kind of like the saver of the ghetto, right? That's kind of like how he conceives of his role. Then you have, you know, the southeastern district, and there you see a prosecutor who's just punitive. There's just like gratuitous cruelty without like any effort to dress it up as anything except just, you know, retribution, let's just give it to them and and, and what have you. And then she's looking at a southwestern district where they're just processing people basically like a like a plant, like an industry. And this is because a lot of these folks are undocumented immigrants and they're sort of speeding them into into deportation. And they have people plead guilty in batches. They even teach them the word culpable, guilty, because they don't even speak enough English to understand what's going on. They just have them stand in line. They all say culpable, and then they just, you know, wheel them out of there and, and push them to deportation. So the geography makes a difference, and, and different people do it differently. What all of these systems have in common is that all of these people are basically holding the same toolkit, and they can take it in any direction that they want, depending on their personal inclinations and what the culture around them would, would you know, would allow. What role does the individual in this society play as a citizen? I mean, doesn't deterrence, aren't we, if you don't know the costs of the crime you've committed and and the risks that you're facing, if, if you're, if they were walking towards Homer's house and they knew, okay, so if we see Homer and we hit Homer, then we're going to get assault. And then assault is five years plus, you know, we're in, a, in the commission of a felony so that now if anything happens to Homer, I mean, there's, we don't, we don't educate people as they're going through the educational system about the consequences of law. All we know is this law, prison, jail. And so what role does deterrence or of educating people so that Arlene knew, oh, I'm going to meet up with people. I'm just getting together in my mom's mm-hmm. house with my boyfriend and friends. So we weren't really getting together. I mean, how does how does that relationship of the citizens' awareness of what they're potential cost could be to these extraordinarily long life sentences of 20 years and she even was potentially going to be facing the death penalty. Right. And, and, and this is this is an excellent question because it gets to sort of the, the this big dream of deterrence that we have and how it actually works in, in real life. And the dream, right, if you open the if you open the law books, what you're seeing is it, it looks like a price list, right? If you do this, you get that. If you do this, you get that. And it's all supposed to be staggered so that you sort of know what the consequences are of what you're doing, except it doesn't really work like that. And it doesn't work like that, first of all, because the law is extremely complicated. 
This is not something that you can be pre-warned about and you open the book and you just see what the price is because there is there are so many complications and additions and multiplications. You can't really expect to, to sort of figure out what you're doing. Then there's also the fact that deterrence is not just a factor of what you're going to get. It's also a factor of whether you're going to get caught. You know, if you go out there and you and you plan a, a burglary, you're not really planning on getting caught, right? This is why you hope to do it when some when nobody's at home, right? You do it, you get out, you get the stuff, and and, and that's it. The smaller the odds are that you're going to get caught, the less you care about how serious the sentence is going to be, because you know if you're not going to get caught, then who cares? The thing is, in order to increase the odds that somebody's going to get caught, we actually have to spend money and time having better quality policing. In order to make the sentences higher, all we need to do is make the sentences higher. It doesn't cost money. It's not an effort. So we've been ratcheting up these crazy sentences, and that's actually not making a dent in deterrence. And then there's the classic factor, and, and at least you guys tell me what you think. I, listening to Arlene, and, and, and I think, uh, Nancy, your recap of this makes a lot of sense. People are not super hyper-rational actors. You know, people don't plan ahead 20 steps of what they're doing, especially not when they live in poverty, when they have a drug, a substance abuse pro uh, problem. You know, people just don't tend to do this calculated cost-benefit analysis that economic models think that, that, that they do. And, and, and this really decreases any, you know, any teeth that, that the argument that this is deterrence could, could possibly have. Nancy, you might have been wondering why the heck did Brittany bring this very big library book? Um, and what I brought was Marina Abramovic's memoir called Walk Through Walls, and she is a performance artist. And she grew up in Yugoslavia um, right after World War II, and she talked about how when she was 14... She and a friend of hers from high school went home, and her parents weren't home, and they took her father's revolver, and she and the friend put one bullet in it and played Russian roulette, and she put it to her temple. It clicked empty. She gave it to him. He put it, I think, in his mouth, um, it put it against his temple, and he pulled it, and it went click, and then she took the gun and pointed it at the bookshelf, and it fired. Um, and... You know, I don't know if that's completely true or not, but I'm going to take it as true. And I think what this highlights and demonstrates is human nature's inherent inability to accurately calculate risk. And uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, really explores this. And so I agree. If if you know that there's only six bullets in the, I mean, six slots in the chamber, and one of them is live, and yet you still pull the trigger. How could you possibly calculate the risk of going and stealing somebody's comic books that you might get a death sentence or life sentence? Thank you for that wonderful um, story. Uh, I'm a fan of Abramovich. But um, so just bringing it back to Arlene's voice, which to me, it just makes her so real to me. And her just mentioning offhand, I was into a lot of drugs at this time. And she made this, you know, however you look at it, she might, you know, I don't know. Let's just say she made some minimum level of calculation. I do believe her when she said I didn't. I would never hurt somebody. I I do believe her. I was. I'm just curious though, from a technical standpoint, they were able to go for a second degree murder. Why was it not manslaughter? It it could be manslaughter. And I mean, the, the, there's a whole menu of homicide offenses, and you can basically pick whichever one you want to prove. And essentially, the way the way federal homicide laws work, and state homicide laws are very similar, is the the actual act, the actual thing that happens, which is you take another person's life, is the same for all of these offenses. But the intent behind what you're doing is different for each one. So for a second-degree murder charge, you need to have some intent. You have to, to have some consciousness that what you're doing might lead to these consequences. Then you have first-degree murder, where you're sort of, you know, you're also 
premeditating, you're actually desiring that this person will die, you're taking some steps to plan for it. And and the prosecutor will often, when when looking at a homicide case, will think, well, what can I prove? What is the jury going to go for? Are they really going to believe that, that there was intent here? And and this is how, how they structure it. And the jury actually has the freedom. Uh, some of our listeners might remember a few years ago the Oscar Grant case where the, the police officer was charged with murder and eventually uh, 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 convicted for, for only involuntary manslaughter. The jury can convict you for a lesser uh, for a lesser included offense. So if they don't think that you've managed to prove the level of intent for the offense the person was charged with, they can they can convict them for a homicide offense with a lesser level of intent. Right. The district attorney in this case did not think he could prove second degree murder beyond a, beyond a reasonable doubt. The federal prosecutors, we don't really know if they believe they could prove it, but they just, they wanted to go to trial basically. Is that, that's my understanding of it. And that, that forced them to take a plea. I thought I thought that was sort of a strategy on their part, or am I misreading that? Right, and this is something that we we talk about professionally as overcharging. It's it's basically a game of chicken is the best way to explain it. Is you charge someone with with something very very severe, and you're betting on the fact that they're going to be scared of the possible consequences if they go to trial, as opposed to as opposed to you getting scared of the fact that you're not going to be able to prove anything and the person's going to get acquitted. And because the odds are stacked, you know, so highly against the defendant. There's a huge incentive on the part of the defendant to plead guilt, and you're basically gambling on that uh, with the charges. So what, do, what in the world does any of this have to do with justice? Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a good question, and, and it's something I, I just marvel whenever I read these technical laws and I look at the enhancements, and I'm thinking, does anyone really, like, honestly, in their, in the, you know, their, their heart of hearts read this and think that it makes, like, it, it brings harmony to the world to know that a person is doing, you know, 25 years for a nonviolent drug offense. Or, or th- does that feel fair? Like when you go home after this, do you feel like, you know, you've done your part to increase justice in the world? It's 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 puzzling. But, you know, you listen to you. You read Mona's book. You listen to what prosecutors are telling telling you about their jobs. They seem to be sleeping fine at night and they feel like they're the agents of justice. I think part of it, Osagi, is a concept of consequences and, you know, I, th- I think from having grown up in Texas with a um, fairly conservative family, um, ironically, who is, has had more interactions possibly with the law than I have, um, they they would they are more kind of law and order types. And right, you, you do the crime, you serve the time. Right. I mean, you know, you broke into a man's home. And in Texas, like the people could be walking away at the mailbox and Homer could have shot them and gotten away with it completely. Actually, the neighbor could have shot him and gotten away with it completely. And so home is home and hearth. Thou shalt not break in to take a comic book or a bag of cat meow mix, nothing. And and so for them, that is the justice is you broke into this man's home. And yeah, there was a bullet in the chamber, unfortunately. And so you got the what was it, the the bad moral luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they would have seen that as completely deserved. I mean, some 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 of them would say they deserve that even if he hadn't died. Right. But is, there seems to be two questions. Like there's the question of right, right or wrong. Is it right or wrong to break into someone's home and assault them and, and take their comic books? That's probably, I think we can probably all agree that's wrong. But is it right or wrong then to sentence that person or that group of people to life in prison um, when... Other crimes that are very similar in nature get don't get the same. I mean, like, w- w- 
That's the question to me. Right. And the, there's the injustice in the particular case where you when we're getting to know the woman and we're talking to her and she's telling us her story. And then there's the sort of the cumulative injustice when you think about the fact that you have a system with hundreds of thousands of cases like this. And and this is why I, I don't know if you guys remember the the big debate about uh, three strikes before three strikes was modified. And one of the complaints was, you know, people are, you know, serving these 25 years to life sentences for essentially stealing pizza or things like that because the law enables that. And to me, I'm like, yes, these individual cases are horrible. But think about the many more people who are not doing that time because they pled guilty to avoid that consequence. So we have a lot of people who are giving up the right to trial because they're afraid of these draconian consequences. So it's bad when you get the full brunt of this in your face, like Arlene got and, and, and these other folks that collaborated. But there's also the people that are serving lesser sentences that now are basically deterred from pursuing their constitutional right to a fair trial because they know that they're going to get something absurdly draconian if they're convicted. So I think it, this is an interesting uh, point to bring this back to the adversarial system, which is where you started, Hadar. And one thing that's always struck me about the adversarial system is how it parallels our economy. Right? So there's a certain kind of uh, market sensibility, the idea that competition would yield the most appropriate result. Um, and that assumption drives our our, our, our commercial our commercial uh, enterprises, drives our financial capability, our financial interactions. Um, and we see that that is not always true, that oftentimes this type of market competition often yields outcomes that are not optimal for society. And you can make that parallel to what we see here in the adversarial system. So I guess my question or something we could talk about or think about is, uh, is there something inherently flawed with the adversarial system where it produces these externalities where it allows for overcharging other types of uh, suboptimal interest to drive uh, a, a system that should first and foremost, have both the defendants and, and societies and, you know, uh, interest in mind, as opposed to allowing these type of other types of considerations to lead outcomes where someone just kind of setting up a a burglary could all of a sudden now be charged with uh, or and sentenced to life in prison. I, I love this analogy. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's uh, the problems here are very similar to the market problems because the sort of this idea of the free market and competition only works if you assume that everybody can negotiate from a place of freedom and having options, which of course we know is not the case, right? That's the, that's the flaw of, of, of the free market uh, hypothesis. And here it's the same thing, right? All the chips are in the hands of the system. The defendant doesn't have any chips. There's actually, there's a beautiful piece by historian John Langbein, who, who passed away a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's called uh, Torture and Plea Bargaining. Mm -hmm. And he's making the point that torture in medieval times was very similar or operated very similarly to the way that plea bargaining operates today. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal. It used to be the case that it was very difficult to, uh, to convict people of an offense because medieval law in Europe required eyewitnesses to testify about what happened. There's not always an eyewitness. You don't, never know for sure what happened and there was no way to convict. So in order to solve that problem, that difficulty in convicting, they started beating people up to get them to confess. And indeed, people were confessing, but now they had this, this solution that they created had a, a problem in itself, which is that how do you know the person's telling the truth and they didn't just confess because you were beating them up? So now they had all these safeguards around torture that, you know, you start gradually, you only show the person the torture tools and, you know, then they agree. So, so there's this whole this whole kind of like thing that develops around sort of making torture less torture-y so that we can assume that there was goodwill. Same thing with plea bargaining, right? Trials are expensive. They require juries. They require this big dog and pony show that we call the, the adversarial criminal trial. We want to avoid them as much as possible. And we have a huge caseload. We want to get rid of as many cases as possible, right? So we create this 
plea bargaining thing to be the solution. But now we have the concern that because the prosecutor has all the chips and they can threaten you with these, you know, outrageous punishments, you're going to 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 plead guilty not because you actually accept responsibility for what you've done, but because you want to avoid the higher danger. This is, I think, what we're hearing here from Arlene. I mean, I'm not hearing somebody who says, you know, every day I beat myself up because I feel fully culpable for this man's death. I, she's not saying that at all. She's saying I'm guilty of planning a burglary. You know, I feel that I've just been very unlucky, right? But you have to plead. But you, so your your guilty plea, which presumably is voluntary, is actually not that voluntary because the person doesn't have a lot of a lot of options. It's not really a free market, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have all these safeguards that we've put around plea bargains, right? The judge is supposed to bring you in, and there's this whole uh, scenario, which is uh, the federal rules of criminal procedure require the judge to ask you, are you doing this voluntarily? Are you doing this out of your free will? They have to look at the other evidence to make sure that the case is not completely fabricated. So there, there are some safeguards, but that doesn't eliminate the basic problem that this is a negotiation between completely unequal parties. What are the hope for any kind of resolution to this, any kind of fix. If we have prisons, almost, what, two and a half million people in prison and jails in the United States doing extraordinarily long sentences, uh, because the prosecutors were able to pull from their toolbox all these tools that they could add in. And let me ask you, do prosecutors get, like, pats on the back when they, I mean, is there more than the election incentive? Oh, yeah. Isn't there some humanity in a prosecutor when they look at somebody like Arlene Coombs and say, you know, you weren't really part of the assault and, and you know, yeah, you had bad moral luck? Um, is Where's the, A, where's the humanity? What do prosecutors gain besides electoral advantage? And, you know, what is the fix? And let me just point out that this was a federal prosecutor who's not actually an elected official. He's, he or she is appointed, mm-hmm. but it's still kind of a political appointment system. Right. And this is another point that I that I uh, forgot to make earlier and is important. There's a, the bo- a book that recently came out by our colleague John Pfaff from Fordham. It's called Locked In. And he's basically looking at all the explanations we've provided for mass incarceration. And he says, you know, when you actually calculate how much impact this has had on the prison population, it's pretty narrow. What's really driving prison populations nationwide is county prosecutors, mm. decisions by county prosecutors. You know, the focus on private prisons is misguided. It's a very small part of the system. The focus on the drug wars is misguided. Uh, most of our inmates in the United States are doing time for violent crime. So we are. We, so we're focusing on things that are unjust and, and, and terrible, but they are not the main drivers of, of the trend. He's saying the main driver is that prosecutors are empowered to, to over prosecute pretty much everything. We didn't prosecute nearly as many felonies, even violent felonies like this before the 70s. So and, and a lot of this is regional stuff. A lot of this is just, you know, which county and which office you work in. If you work in an office of someone who's decent and violent and uh, decent and, and, and reasonable and sees themselves as, a, as an officer of the court, you know, they're going to reward you for doing the right thing. But if you have the bad luck of working as, as an assistant DA in an office where you're being, you know, res- more respected and more admired, if you manage to get people into jail for, for massive periods of time, that's that's what you're going to do. So so there's this ethos of machismo around prosecutors that 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 develops. That's it's just the organizational culture. You could be you could be a good person who wants to walk into the office in the morning and do the good, the right thing. But you're surrounded by this very pervasive culture. And, and eventually you're going to be, you know, you're going to be absorbed into the system. And I think part of it is also uh, is the, um, so much of the prosecutorial culture is the quantification of one's results. So being able to measure your effectiveness by number of, of people who are uh, who plea out number of years served, these type of things are they, they inform certain other types of decisions, such as who becomes a judge. 
And so as long as the incentives uh, lend themselves towards type of quantification of merit, it produces a culture where prosecutors want to be able to put an easily legible resume out front about the public and their and their uh, colleagues to say, I am ready for that next step in my career. So sadly, a lot of this is career advancement on the backs of some of the most vulnerable people. And let me add that I had a conversation uh, a few months ago with a psychologist who's also an attorney, and he was explaining that for attorneys who are in highly litigious environments, they are on kind of a constant adrenaline fight or flight surge and actually can start to suppress their ability to empathize with other people. So you add that on top of all of these other external um, incentives, you, you're in trouble. I mean, there's, yeah. it, it's a pervasive problem. Well, part of the thing I, I, I like to think we do at InStudio after we've kind of discovered a problem in the law or a situation in the law is... A, try and figure it out, like what's happening around prosecutorial discretion. And the other thing is, is what can we do? Um, so I'm going to like, we're just about out of time, but I want to give everybody a chance to just, you know, make a final, you know, question, comment about this, uh, because right now I'm feeling pretty depressed. <laughs> I don't really see an upside. So let, let's, everybody just take a minute, t t tell us what, what are we supposed to do about this? Um, or where are we? I think depoliticizing prosecutions would, would go a long way towards solving the problem. Sort of not making people as accountable to the public and to sort of waves of, you know, mob justice and hysteria that go back and forth would go would go a long way. Uh, in the same way that in other countries, there are, you know, prosecutors are civil servants. They're sort of isolated from from, from all this stuff. And, and to, to, to a certain extent, that would help. Of course, what would also help is if people didn't have these tools at their disposal in, in the first place. And, and I, I just want to add one more thing, which is the kind of like federal state thing that's going on here that I think is interesting is that uh, there is actually a policy in place uh, called the petite policy where the feds are supposed to refrain from pulling in cases from the state unless some important interest hasn't been vindicated. Now, I'm, I'm looking at this case and I'm thinking, well, what impossible, what possible interest has not been vindicated here at the state level that the feds have to use this? Mona's book shows that prosecutors violate this all the time. They pull in uh, drug cases after the person's already been convicted and sentenced at the state, sentencing them again. So just sort of reiterate this thing and, and not remunerating people for, for redoing a process that's already been done at the state level. And who polices the prosecutors? It's just a policy. It's not a regulation. It's internally, it's, it's, just, it's kind of like a gentlemanly agreement between two sovereign nations, right? The federal government and the states. I'm not going to say anything about gentlemen's agreements right now. So, um, okay. So wheels are turning in my head about this idea about metrics, because this is something that in, we spend a lot of time thinking about in software. There's this like idea that what is easy to measure is what you end up measuring and what you end up measuring is what you end up optimizing for. So I'm, I'm just like, I'm really struck by this framing and what alternative metrics could exist that could provide better incentives. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That, it, and to the extent that we are, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, these types of career decisions are calculated, or should I say, they're these decisions that um, are made about who advances and who doesn't are premised upon the, these things that are easily measurable. And so, I think Jessica make a great point that if we want to see more justice in these outcomes, how do we kind of reconfigure these incentives so that the individual prosecutor's career incentives align with the broader societal interests of seeing, um, you know, people treated fairly? And I think it's going to start with uh, a public discussion about making sure that you know we. Uh, we are uh, uh, putting the entire system in a position where it's oriented towards justice as opposed to 
um, these type of little boxes that can get checked to demonstrate one's uh, effectiveness. Oh, the other thing that I was reminded of by what you said is, it's like everyone who wants to be woke right now has read the new Jim Crow, and there's like a bunch of stuff that is being commonly talked about, but it, so- it sounds like we have trouble focusing the public on the right issues to really apply pressure on. And that, so now I'm really thinking about this. How do, you, how do you brand and market and describe things in a way that gets the public to focus on the, on, on the actual important pressure points in the legal system? It's partly why I'm hoping that John's book will, will make you know, similar waves to the waves that the new Jim Crow made, because he actually has the numbers to show you that even things that you think of as, as abhorrent and unjust are not necessarily the things that are driving the major trend. And we can fight all of these things, right? I have enough love in my heart to fight at least seven wars now against all these different things. But but the seriousness of the prosecutorial discretion issue is, is really something that we can't ignore. And we can't be focusing all of our energy on making the wrong things being the face of this movement. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still looking for something to, to quell this sort of disenchantment I have with the legal system, like the system right now. But I want to relate something that happened while we were making this story. We were on the phone with Mary Lee Williams, and we considered the possibility of changing Homer's name to Marciniak, to referring to him by his last name only. And all of a sudden, he became a far less sympathetic character. Um, in other words, in the process of making this story, um, we were very conscious of the fact that by using his name, his first name, Homer, he became a much more sort of sort of a real person for us that we could sort of relate to. I just want to throw that out there um, because I think it definitely affects the way that this story was uh, presented. When I first listened to the story, it was out hearing Arlene's version, right, her her interview. And so um, having heard that, it did change my perspective of it. And so then that comes back to, like, if you're just pleading out these deals and prosecutors never even get to see these people as as people with first names and real lives and stories, then they are just mere objects that can be dismissed. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has just been great. Uh, I, I I am so glad you all joined today in the studio that we could kind of sort this out because Tony and I have been living with this story for the last few months and to just really have a chance to talk it through and figure out uh, what really is going on with prosecutorial discretion in the United States is really satisfying. This episode of Life of the Law in studio was produced by Tony Gannon. I'd like to thank Mary Lee Williams for her reporting on 10 hours to 20 years. She did a fantastic job. If you haven't listened to the story, you can go on our website, lifeofthelaw.org and hear it, or go to iTunes or your favorite podcast app and listen to the episode. Special thanks also to today's in-studio team, Hadar Avaram, law professor at UC Hastings and a member of our advisory panel of scholars. Brittany Botorf, attorney with the Mayor Law Group and chair of Life of the Law's advisory board. Tony Gannon, our senior producer. Our new advisory board member, Jessica McKellar, a software developer and author. And Asagi Obasaki, our advisory board member and professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. You can find links to their profiles and their work on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We'll be sure to add links to all of the books and articles that were referred to in this in-studio on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane post produced this episode. Our music was composed by Ian Koss. Howard Gelman and Danny Brinker were our engineers at KQD Radio in San Francisco. Special thanks to Julia Braun. Next on Life of the Law John Philip Sousa, Victor Herbert, all these big composers come to Congress in 1905, 1906, and they're like, hey guys, people are going out there, they're making wax cylinders, they're making discs. They're making 
money off of our music, but we're not getting paid for it. That's next on Life of the Law. If you're curious about the law and like binge listening, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. There are more than 110 amazing episodes about people like me and you and the law. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law, including notes from our reporters and our listeners. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing episodes such as this one. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.